0: Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. Today is July 26th, and this is not going to go out on July 26th, but I want to make sure that I wish my my co-host and good friend, Wilkie V. Law III, a very happy 44th birthday today. Buddy, how are you? I am doing wonderful, man. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you.
1: Appreciate your birthday. Shout out. You know, I try not to make a big deal about my birthday anymore, just kind of let it come and go and stay reflective, but... I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing that we're doing this podcast today uh, on my birthday with one of my dear friends, um, Dr. Aliria Muhammad. I am excited. I'm excited. Thank you for being here, joining us on this podcast today. And
2: thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before we got on about the history uh, of how long we've known each other. You know, I
1: think it's been like a Mac days. Growing up here in Houston yes. together, and um, transitioning to high school together, He graduated with my sister um, in uh, nineteen ninety one, and then I graduated a few years later. And it's just amazing that even we ended up at the same university. And then I remember for a while we lived in the same apartment complex in Moskva, yes. right? did. Yeah. <laughs> we
2: yeah.
1: And we it. <laughs> so it, it's just a, it's amazing that, that that now on my birthday we get an opportunity to. Uh, to bring your light of education to, um, to our listeners. And we're excited. We're we're pushing close to our 100th episode, and we're almost at 20,000 uh, downloads on iTunes and SoundCloud. So, you know, we this journey of the podcast has been a, a major one for us, and we thank you for taking the time out and, and blessing our audience with your presence today. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I look forward to being able to some of my
0: experiences. Yeah, you know, and Will, uh, just so we can clarify, what, what university did you go to?
1: Southwest Texas State University.
0: And yes. I, I don't, I looked up, I tried to Google Southwest Texas and it wasn't, I, I know there's a Texas state in San Marcos. They're one and the
1: same. However, my degree that was conferred upon me by Dr. Jerome Supple. The
2: Texas State University. So, yes, there um, are people who love Texas State, but we went to Southwest Texas. State.
0: Oh my gosh! And I I hope Talitha listens to this because she is as <laughs> bullish as anyone. Like I love the fact that T won't even wear a shirt that says Texas State. Absolutely, oh. not. It's, it's it's
1: funny. She looks the ones with Bobcats on it. It looks like it says
2: Bobcat alumni, but if it says Texas State. Yeah, won't wear it.
1: Yeah, um, she can get the, the SWC sticker from Green next time she's in San Marcos. Oh, from so grand. I will I let her know. Yeah, they still sell, like the yeah. SWC sticker. Yeah, I will let her know. She, she's pretty doggy. I'm not, as, I'm not as hardcore as she is, but I do correct people when I let them know. I graduated from Southwest Texas. Yeah. You know, it, that that, I, I, that was a proud accomplishment for me. and. Um, The Mm name change didn't change the school. I mean, it's
0: still what it is. I mean, was considered one of the best schools out there and and, yeah. Wasn't Liz Garcia out there the same time you were, Will? Yes. Liz Garcia, Dr. Garcia. She was, um,
1: she was, yeah, I think she graduated around the same time I did from undergrad. Mm.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Smart people going to Southwest Texas. That
1: makes it so we're gonna jump in. So, uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk. um, uh, uh, share a little bit with our people about where you're from. We talked about from Houston, but what do you do now? Um,
2: I'm from Houston. Um, the, my favorite city more. I'm Cashmere area. I'm a proud graduate of Cashmere Senior High School. Um. Currently, I work as the director of support um, with your Scripted Board, so I actually work in the same community that I grew up in, um, which was very important to me. Um, what that means is I'm in charge of everything in the school that is not academic. I deal with the athletics, counselors, um, anything that's not academic comes through my office. Mm.
1: Awesome. So a lot of the teachers, do you, do you deal with like teacher preparation and things of that nature?
2: Um, I do do the teacher preparation. I also um, make myself available as a mentor. I was lucky my first year. My godmother worked at my school and I had, uh, I became a part of a great team. I became part of a highly functional team, my first year teaching. So the support that I had was amazing, but I also saw other teachers on my campus and other friends that were teachers. That didn't get that same level of support based on what their placement was.
1: Um,
2: so I that was made that my so My first teaching assignment was actually at William P. Hobby under Evelyn Patterson and Howard Clark. Uh, okay. I was a fifth grade teacher there, and I taught there for four years before I left and went to the Middle East to talk pre-K. Mm.
0: So. Just a, a real quick kind of follow-up question and I think this is to Will's point that he's you know kind of going back to teaching not, not necessarily where he, he grew up but where he lives like what's what's the importance of or or what experience do you bring to your kids being that you're from that area and you have a, an understanding of what they're going through how does that you know shape the way you, you're you able to support kids and support teachers So I'll tell you a short
2: story about something that happened recently I was at my mom's house and my mom still lives in and I told the children that I'd grow up and get bored and told them all of that. And one of the students saw me at my mom's house. And she came to school the next day, and she said, That's Muhammad, Were you at your aunt's house? I said, My aunt's house? What's at my mom's house? She said, Oh, like, your mom lives in the Kelly Court? I said, Yeah, that's where the grew up at. And she was in complete shock. And then the next day, I go back to school, and the kids are all like, Oh, she's one of us one of us so they understood to have somebody that came from that area um that it can be done that's the biggest thing that i bring to my students that it can be done i came from the same street that you walk and it can be done what i bring to teachers it can only be done with you we have amazing teachers at cashmere amazing um our english department was top-notch consequently if you graduated from cashmere You can probably write very well if you graduated between, say, 88 and about 96. Our math department was top notch There was an expectation that you took algebra before you graduated from from, um, high school. And calculus, it was was an expectation. And that's what I bring to my teachers. These students will achieve to whatever level you expect them to achieve If you If
1: expect them to go to calculus, they'll go to calculus. If you expect them to barely pass pre algebra and struggle through, that's exactly what they'll do. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I just got goofed to listening to you talk, but that's just, that's so in, in our wheelhouse of empowering teachers to believe that it. it starts with you. You know, when yep. Kyle and I you are. The in the
2: classroom.
1: Exactly. When Kyle and I met, I had just finished reading James Allen's book, As a Man Thinking.
2: And when I read that
1: book, as an educator, I walked into my classroom realizing that I was teaching a lot of the wrong things about my kids. and So I was getting the wrong results. And just a simple shift in how I thought about them and what I thought of them and what I thought they could do. The moment I shifted that and started projecting that onto them, it revolutionized everything that I did. From that point, it was almost like planting seed in Hawaii. You just drop it anywhere it's going to grow. Any type of yeah. variety took place. And so I I, I, I champion that with you um, that it starts with the educators.
0: Well, and, uh, and, you know, that's that same time with that same book, you know, when I started at Stellick, not only was I, you know, I was. I was not in a good place in my personal life with the people I was hanging out with and kind of, it didn't jive with who I wanted to be. And you recognize that, but you know, you really showed me like, and that was the first book you suggested to me, I think. And I read it and then we started talking about, you know, the expectations we have of kids. And, and on one hand you taught me that with sixth grade kids, cause I was coming from eighth grade you have to lower your expectations of their ability to really reason and do those things, but you can't lower your expectations of their behavior and what you expect them to do in the classroom. And, and I think that was just the changes because I was teaching eighth grade and, and I was used to having conversations with eighth graders and the sixth graders aren't capable of having that same um, maturity level conversation, most of them. But that doesn't mean you change your expectation of, of how they behave and you know, how you want them to do academically.
2: And I think that's what happens um, when we look at what's happened in education in the last few years and the number of failing schools that we have in, in the state of Texas. And I say the state of Texas because we tend to believe that a school is successful because the children pass star. But I don't think the general public realizes how low some of those passing rates are. Mm-hmm. And parents' children get excited because, yay, I passed my star test, and there's some tests where you need 37% to be successful. And,
1: and that is 37% of the minimum expectation.
2: Right. But it's the expectation that I only need 37% to be successful. So mm-hmm. what are we saying to kids if they only need 37% to be successful? You can't get a cosmetology license with 37%. You can't get a driver's license with 37%. There is no place that 37% is acceptable except the state of Texas standardized data. Expectations Our expectations in education are low of our kids. And then we say, well, they can't read and they don't have 21st century skills. My pushback is always, well, who's teaching them? If they can't read, what? who's teaching them to reach? If they don't have 21st century, how is your school and your program set up to ensure that they have those skills? And individually, as a teacher, when you recognize those things, what interventions do you bring to individual students that puts them on the right path? Again, it goes back. The teacher is the most powerful force in a classroom. As an administrator, I can do a million things. I can train you. I can develop you. If you do not go in that classroom and execute with love for kids and fidelity and hope and understanding that they are our future, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money we put into a school. It doesn't matter how much talent we bring into a school. The teachers are on the front lines. If they're not executing, the whole plan falls.
1: Yeah. You know, and that kind of leads right into this next question. So who was your favorite teacher and why?
2: Well, I had two favorite teachers for different reasons. My favorite teacher, just because I loved her, was my second grade teacher. And it was just kind of that I was a little girl and she was a big girl. And I wanted to dress like her, walk like her, talk like her. Um, in terms of teachers that kind of set me straight, my favorite teacher was Linda Latifendy. Um, she was also formerly the principal at DeBakey, but she was English, my English teacher for my 11th and 12th grade year, and she was my homeroom teacher for my 9th and 10th grade year. And I was, I graduated from high school when I was 15, and was very proficient at getting stuff done without doing anything, and she was one of the three teachers that challenged me. Um, I would write a research paper in her class and she gave me a C on it. And when I asked her about the C, she said, I didn't give you a C because of the content. I gave you a C because of the effort. She said, I know you wrote this in two days. Everybody else has been working on their paper for two weeks and you wrote this in two days. I gave you a C for the effort. And that was the first time that I realized effort was a thing. Um, I had gone through school effortlessly. And so that's one of the things that I I'm impressed upon teachers is making sure that you praise children, as Because you don't want them always chasing a number goal, I need to know that you're going to work hard no matter what the goal is. So I'm going to praise the effort and the process more than I'm going to praise the attainment of the goal. Because if you're putting in the effort, we're going to get the goal. And so that was something that I learned first as a student and then began to teach as a teacher. Wow. You know, it's
1: interesting. I was... Um Dr. Lavendi, I was at um, the Wright School during, oh, yes. i did the Wright i did the Wright summer program for two years a couple years ago, and I, when I walked into the building, I saw her and instantly was like transformed. That kid walking into her classroom in the corner upstairs, and I was mm-hmm. like, and when when I saw her, and I was like, it's Lavendi, and she turned around. And she remembered me. I mean, it's it you talk about the power of connections and that you can have with students. When you know, I know at that point it had to be close to twenty years that I've been in their classroom, and for her to turn around and to remember me, and even remember things about me, you know, mm-hmm. and I was just like, wow, you know. So I can understand that um, she was amazing. She was, she was that teacher at Cashmere that I really can say for me as a writer really defines me. And you were right if you, you okay. hit the nail on the head about the writing.
2: Definitely.
1: Definitely. Between yeah. her and
2: Miss Taylor, you were gonna get it. <laughs> you, you, you had you either had to be quiet or you were gonna get it. Those were the only two options you had. And Trey, I wanna throw out something else about Miss Lazarby because the dynamic that that I hear a lot um, in the environment that I work in. Miss Lazarby was a white teacher taught in a school that had zero white students didn't bother her at all she came to school with the highest expectations and i remember one of her favorite phrases to us when we would complain about stuff and she would tell us they're doing it at bel-air oh and making us realize that our competition was not in our school our competition was the whole rest of the world when you go out and, you know, apply for a job, you're not applying for a job for all the kids in Cashmere. You know, anybody and everybody has access to that. So that was one of the things that I appreciated from her was the diversity and even from quite a few of our teachers um, at Cashmere were white teachers who fought in black schools, and many of them spent their whole careers there. Mr. James, Ms. Kessema, mm-hmm. Ms. Roberts, they spent their entire careers at Cashmere, Um mm-hmm. But it's just, awesome. you know, making teachers aware that you can, yeah, Mr. Osborne, okay, bro, um, yeah. <laughs> that you can do, you can, <laughs> that was Mr. Osborne's phrase. <laughs> but, you know, knowing that you can have those types of connections with children no matter where you're from. That you can develop those type of relationships and have that type of lasting impact from children, and it's not just children that look like you. It's not just children that come from where you came from. Those people came to that school every day and dedicated their full entire lives buying uniforms, lunches, taking us on trips, paying for field trips when we couldn't pay for them. You know, those are the things that I took away from what being a teacher means. That just that general care and concern for another human being and their success.
1: Uh, So that that leads perfectly into, in your eyes, what is the value of a great teacher?
2: (laughs) There is no value for a great teacher because you cannot measure the value of a great teacher. Um, Nobody gets anywhere without a teacher. That's just actual fact. I don't care what your profession is great as bill Gates did, somebody taught him how to read, somebody taught him how to write, somebody taught him math. Somebody taught him the, the principles that he needed to put computers together. Um, teachers are the most valued, undervalued part of our society because nobody gets anywhere without going through one of them. Um, like I said, I don't think you can put a value on it in a classroom, in a school. The most powerful force in any school is the teacher. Or the most pivotal force in any school is the teacher, because that's the person that decides on whether your great plan is it's going to be executed, your great technology is it going to be used, um, what 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 mindset am I instilling in my students? That all comes from the teacher.
0: Well, and that's to the point that wow. we've been and you've really been championing. Will is that not you know teachers aren't just the most powerful force in a classroom. They're the, they're the most powerful and, you said, undervalued resource we have in the entire country. Yes. I mean,
2: I mean you think about it. If you, if you decided to leave education right now and you wanted to transition to another field, what would you likely do? Go back to school and do what? Take classes from who? A teacher. <laughs> when you take driver's ed class, in order for you to be able to drive... They now have to take the road test. Well, what do they have to... You see them all the time. They're student
1: drivers because they have a teacher. Mm. Yeah. And that, you know, we... One of the things, one of the phrases we, we, we've always said that teachers make up 1% of the population here in the United States, but we have the power to control the 99.
2: Okay. And if
1: we can get teachers to understand that sense of their value, is that you are... You're the one percent, and that's one of that's one of our uh, fundraising uh, 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 slogans. it's we we're the one percent. We're in the one percent. We're an elite group of of people on this planet that has the power to shape and mold our entire society. That's power, and I don't think teachers really see that. They see themselves almost as glorified babysitters.
2: And they and if you see yourself as that, and that's what you go in the classroom and do every day, you go in the classroom and basically, I'm a motivator of change. <laughs> I specialize in changing lives. That's my that's my tagline as an educator. I'm in changing lives. So what do I do every day? I go to work and work on my specialty, which is changing lives. But it's exactly what you said, as we started off talking about, what is your mindset as an educator? Oh, they can't do it. All I'm just doing this until my other job comes through. Oh, well, they didn't hire me to do that, and I have a deal, and so I'm just going to be a teacher with this prep program. Because that's one of the things I absolutely am anti-alternative uh, certification programs, although I came through one. Uh, because the number of people who go into teaching because they have nothing else
1: to do. It's right. not that type of deal. You are, you are in control this of this country's future. Yeah, I get a big kick every time I drive down the freeway and I see the the sign. And I went to Texas teachers, so not a shot at them at all. But uh, it says, uh, "Want to teach? When can you start?" You
2: know, I post that on Facebook about every six months. I post, I rage against that because you don't see a sign that says, "Want to be an attorney?" "Want want want to do surgery?" No other profession advertises like that. One to two. Yes. Okay, well I do. Well, come on over here and come to this little program. That's not value in our profession. That 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 is not placing the value on the profession and giving people a proper idea because that makes it look easy. That makes it look like you're going to be a glorified baker. And it also gives teachers unreal expectations when they get in there. There's a reason why we believe. 50% of teachers who will leave teaching leave after their third year. That's a reason why. Because we sold, we sold them something that was not true. Oh, you're going to able to go in the classroom. You go on a teacher print program. And I was like, okay, well, when, when, when little Johnny is being, you know, off task, you just look at him and say, Johnny, I would like to redirect you. I work in Fifth Ward. That, mm-hmm. work. mm-hmm. that, that didn't work.
1: I worked in High Clark.
2: That didn't work. I worked in Sunnyside, which is the most violent zip code in Houston. Telling little Johnny that you're going to redirect him does not work. Why are we not preparing teachers for the realities of what they're going to find in classrooms? We know what the reality is. Right. It's not like we're hiding the ball, but we want. Well, you're going to take a class to decorate bulletin boards and we're going to show you how to be visually appealing to children. Seriously? That's what our teacher prep programs are teaching teachers how to match colors? That doesn't go to the heart of what we do. The heart of what we do as educators is, again, change lives. And we've got to teach teachers how to do their programs like capturing kids' hearts, um, connecting with kids, um, PDIS programs where we bring the best out of children. We train our educators to go in each day and bring the best out of children.
1: Right. And if you're not, if that's not the reason for it, then why do it?
2: Exactly.
1: You know, I always say, I always say, I lo- I love looking at words and the etymology of words. When we look at educate, the etymology of the word doesn't mean to put anything in; it means to draw out. Exactly. And yet you're pulling out of them. The seed doesn't. The seed is not affected by what's on the outside of it. It doesn't grow from the outside in. It grows from the inside out. So, if you're teaching, that's where we have to really get, to, you know, to, um, to to teachers. And one of the things that I said as an instructional coach for the last three years, one of the things I try to stress with teachers is the most important lesson you can teach your student is how to build a relationship. If I can teach you how to build a relationship. I don't care what math it is that you need to learn because you're going to learn it just because of our relationship. I don't care what what ELA or uh, reading skill that I'm trying to teach you. I'll be able to give it to you. Why? Because we're in a relationship with each other. We desire each other something because of that relationship because I know you're going to give me something that's going to be meaningful to my life. If I don't have that relationship, there. You can throw it out the window. It's, it's you're just, you're just, dumping, you're just dumping stuff into a bucket and waiting for them to regurgitate it up for a test. And now you send them all to the next level. But they're not better than what they were when they came to you. And that's what we see so. when we
2: look at scores. We see kids who flatline. Yeah. We see mm-hmm. students who get to a certain point and they're at the same point in eighth grade that they were when they were in the kids'
0: grade. Right. Because those relationships disappear. Well, and, and I want to yeah. come back to your point of... of preparing teachers for what the reality is you know I I grew up small town Wisconsin and that's where I live now and my first job was um at at Hambrick Middle School in Aldine right off right on Aldine mail route you know right there by 59 and I I was not prepared for not just the re I wasn't prepared for what the reality that those kids went through like I grew up so so sheltered and it took me a while to understand and really get to know my kids and understand what they, you know, the challenges that they brought with them. And we've talked to so many teachers, you know, in the last year about, you know, reaching the kids on a social level to help them deal with, you know, whatever problems that they've got before you can even try to touch the academic side. And, and I wish prior to me getting down to Texas or even in my college prep program that they had really, talked about the realities of what kids are facing. I think teachers should have to take like several sociology classes, no matter what their discipline is that, so that they have an understanding of, you know, what's going on in our country and what our kids are going through and and the realities of what they might face, whether they're, you know, in Houston or they're somewhere on a native American reservation or they're in Las Vegas or Washington or Baltimore. Like the majority of teachers are going to teach in cities And we should start to prep those teachers to know what those situations are like.
2: Exactly what you said. Um, When I was in college, I read Jonathan Colgo's Savage Inequality. Um, And at the time, I came from Kashmir, which was Um, I think Eric Justin has been telling us for years that um, high school should start before 9 o'clock because they don't begin cognitively until around that time, but we still send them to school at 7.30 in the morning. Um, We know certain things about how the brain operates, but it doesn't translate into our practice. I am.
1: Time in sixth grade, where you know I, I, you know, pretty much dropped out. You know, got retained, had to repeat it again. It was still a part of school in my eyes that was fun. It was like talking with the teachers. It was fun. You know, I still remember. You know, middle school teachers. I, you know, I remember Ms. Bailey. You know, I remember. You know, going through (laughs) and, and those little nuggets that you would get from teachers that just made you feel really, really. Um, right. and now it's like you get there and as a teacher I walk around and as a coach I was walking around I a chance to go in a lot of classrooms and it's like no I wouldn't want to be in this room yeah you
2: know, I I'm I've had to do observation and it has just been horrible for me to try to sit there through a 50 minute class and I'm thinking the kids do this every single day like I can't even you sit for just 50 minutes. I've gone to the restroom twice, made two calls, and a check They have to sit here and listen to that. They don't have the no luxury to just walk outside and make a laugh
1: around the school and come back. They don't have that luxury. You know, I'm, I'm going to modify this next question just because I think that, um, I think you may to give us a little fresh perspective. Um, what is one thing you think all teachers should talk?
2: I think all teachers should be taught should go. I think as opposed to us just showing teachers Maslow's hierarchy, that should be like a full semester class where you delve into Maslow's hierarchy, because you've got to know hungry kids don't learn, and walking in and saying, no, we're just going to push through today. No, I know you can do it. I know it's difficult at home, but I believe in you. His stomach is growling. He did not sleep last night. His daddy went to jail this morning. No, he cannot do it. Not right now. And you need to know what to do when that happen. And we say, Maslow, but we also, okay, well, the first five minutes of class has to look like this. It does. But where is that check for that bottom rung of Maslow to make sure that our kids are safe? We have students in schools that are homeless. Who knows that they're homeless because a homeless child does not perform as well as a child that has a secure space if i if i could if i could develop any class that every educator would have to go through it would be a class centered solely on like how i saying the sociology behind Navajo, looking at what that looks like in different communities going to take tours of different communities let me take you into the worst part of Fit War, you thought you knew Fit War. Let me show you the part that even people from Fed War don't go to. You thought you knew Sunnyside. Let me drive you through the apartment complex where they had seventeen murders already this year in one apartment complex. Let me show you how the kids live over there. Because until we get through that and learn how to it's a program that I love, Capture Kids' Hearts. Until you learn how to do that, you're not going to be successful. Our children are going to be mediocre at best if we don't figure that out.
1: Wow. Wow. Um, we kind of covered the next one, um, but I, I, I'll go ahead and ask you, what's your take on the state of education right now? <laughs>
2: Oh, if I had my way, I would, Uh, first of all, state testing would be a thing of the past. Um, It has killed our education system. It has killed the innovation in our education system. The state of our education, we're not educating kids. We're warehousing kids. We have full areas where we know students, schools are struggling from kindergarten through 12th grade. The entire theater pattern elementary, middle school, high school are struggling. We don't address it. Even what has been amazing to me is being a product of HISB, a former employee of HISB, the state is threatening to take over your schools and you still don't have a plan. Whose kids are those? Would you be as lackadaisical about those kids if they were yours, if they looked like you? Well. We still don't have a plan for what to do with cashmere. We still don't have a plan for how we're going to attack those neighborhoods except, oh, we'll shift the kids to another school. That doesn't change gaps. That doesn't address the problem. I'm going to move you to another school with a new principal. Actually, that that makes the problem worse because you're dealing with students who already have issues with stability. And what do you do? You change out the stable presence in their lives, which has been the school that they've been going to, and you're going to put them in a new environment, and that's somehow going to make them feel more stable so that they can progress up Maslow's hierarchy. It's not going to happen. What's the biggest issue in education is we have too many people who have never been educators making decisions about what we need to be doing. There's no other industry where your board gets to not be in your industry. Like the CEO of Ford must have some automotive experience. Why don't our board president have to have education experience in order to sit on the school board? And that's not just HISD, that's other ISDs as well. Why don't you have to have experience about what you're making decisions about? Because if you don't, what are those decisions based upon? But, uh, mm. I so my you... and I'm honest when I tell you I have a niece he graduated I have two nieces actually that just graduated um, both in education and I begged and pleaded with them not to go into education as, as I am I'm about to deal. I, I, I feel bad inviting people
1: in mm. and you know it, 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 it's almost one of those situations on one hand it's like you see that there's hope, but you see the struggle that's going to be taken, that's going to be taken, that's, gonna, that's necessary to get to that hope. Right. But at the same time, it's like you don't see the pieces of the puzzle that's moving to get us to that hope. So it's think right. like the if they... And, I, you know, one of the things we, we... The whole premise of this podcast was to make sure we were able to amplify the teacher voice. Because, you know, right. one of the things, when I got my master's degree... Everybody was like, "Oh, you're going to be assistant principal. Oh, I think you'll be a great assistant principal." I say, "I don't want to be in. I don't want to be in Why push great teachers just because they you think they're good teachers to say go become an administrator? You have to have an administrator's heart, I believe, to want to be an administrator in, in education. Well, I think because
2: because of not, is when you look at when you look at pay scale, the reality is, you know, uh, as a husband, a father, you know, you need to bring money into your home why don't we reward great teachers in the classroom I don't know that's actually one of the things that I like about Yes Prep um, they are other avenues for teachers to um, increase their pay without leaving the classroom so that we can keep our best and brightest inside of the classroom
1: mm. yeah I mean like for me this, this year going back, this year going back is what has me excited like I feel like a first year teacher again like that and nervous giddiness about I'm ready to get my hands on, you know, work right. bitch. and work with And kids. And i say for me, leaving the classroom three years ago, <clears throat> I said it then. I miss it. Like, that's my that That's what I operate in. And whether I'm teaching teachers in the classroom setting or I'm teaching students in the classroom setting, to me, teaching is what I am. Like, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher, but I think a lot of administrators – because of the paperwork and all the other things they have to do, it becomes a a managerial position where it still should be a lead educator. It should still be 100% hands-on involvement. And when you see great schools, that's what you see happening. You know, you see principals and assistant principals who are lead educators and not just, you know, administrative, managerial, you know, supervisory roles. They're they're actually in the trenches with the teachers. Well, you know, when yeah, it's a mind- I believe it's a mindset shift, though. It's what you choose
2: to prioritize on your team. If you choose to prioritize uh-huh. instructional leadership, then that's what's going to be a priority. If you choose to prioritize ensuring that children have a safe environment to come to school, you know, it, it falls down exactly what you're saying from the top. But if you choose to prioritize managerial duties, then I'm pretty sure your teachers get their grades in on time, their grade books look okay, but... Because there are other areas of your school that are not where they need to be. As an administrator,
0: I have to come in every day and prioritize. My students are
2: my priority. Right. That's
0: why we're here. You know, and, and to your point, you know, we've talked a lot about Texas, but I can attest that in Wisconsin. You know, the school I taught at last year is a very affluent, um, you know, kind of small small town school, but, you know, good parents, good all that and they hired an, an assistant principal for this upcoming year that their only job is teacher evaluations. That's, that's solely that assistant principal's job is just to manage and do teacher evaluations through the year.
2: And my question was, if you, if you work in a school and your sole job is not to have, is not to improve student achievement and improve interactions with kids, you're in the wrong school. Right. Because everything flows from there. How to get teachers to improve? Usually, the, the quickest way to get any teacher to improve is to help her improve her relationships with you.
0: And I don't think anywhere on their uh, on their evaluation scale is really relationships really judged. Exactly. Exactly.
2: But again, I would be curious know, how the evaluation system was developed with what eyes and with what goals. Mm-hmm. Because the goal of the evaluation system should be helping teachers, helping teachers improve to
1: help students
2: improve. Right.
1: Wow. Alright, so what is your individual philosophy of education?
2: So I'm gonna make it easy. I go back to Joan Raymond, who was the superintendent when we were in school, and her philosophy was all children can learn. All children will learn, and that's my philosophy of education. It doesn't say that all children will learn the same thing as we're trying to do now with this No Child Left Behind. It doesn't say all children will learn at the same pace. We know that that's not true. All children can learn. If given the tools, the resources that they need, all children can learn. All children will learn when put in safe environments with caring and supportive teachers. All children will learn, and
1: no. I wholeheartedly believe that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kind of skip paper. we want to honor your time. And um, you kind of touched on those other things without even doing it. Like the great interview for me. Like, I I could sit and listen. I love, as an educator, I love talking education. I think anytime we can get an opportunity to talk shop with uh, other individuals who are not just who, who, who have strategically thought about what education is and how it should be, I think those conversations need to happen more and they need to be broadcast so that people can. See, and, and you can kind of build this this, this this tribe of teachers who are saying, look, enough is enough. Enough is enough. You know, I love that Steve Jobs quote where he says, you know, we hire smart people and tell them what to do. When we should hire smart people and have them tell us what needs to be done. Right. You know, right. and I think that that's what education needs to get. Listen to, listen to us. We know. We, we're on the front lines. You know, if we're saying, right. look, it's not safe to go over this ridge." You gotta trust us. Going we say go over there is not a good idea. Exactly. You think it, oh, we'll deal with a fallout. No, it's just not a good idea. But because you're. One told, movie
2: you're that. Go ahead. I was gonna say a movie that uh, is an analogy to me of the type of educator that I want to see is the. Uh, uh, I think it's called Unstoppable with Denzel Washington and the train. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he was at I've been doing this for 20 years. Y'all can sit in that room and say what you want to say. That stuff is not going to work, and I know it's not, and I'm not not going to lose my train. And I think about that in terms of children. I'm in this classroom, and I'm going to fight for what I know will save my children. I'm not going to lose my train. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So can you kinda of talk to our listeners about your experience teaching abroad? Do you feel that it gave you like uh, a different perspective on education here?
2: Um, teaching abroad, I taught my first year abroad I taught pre K to three and four year olds. So coming from being a fifth grade teacher of English speakers to teaching pre K to native Arabic speakers and you know at that age they only know two, three thousand Arabic words. They're still building their Arabic vocabulary, oh. let alone trying to assimilate English words. Um, my second year there, I was made head of faculty at a kindergarten school, which is pretty much like a dean of instruction. And my third year there, I was responsible for professional development for teachers at three different schools. Um, what it gave me was a perspective on just things that were innate to children. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just these children or these children over here do this, but there were certain things that you realize, you no, know, that's child development. And going back to what Kyle was saying earlier with sociology, we need to hand teachers a child development chart so they know what to expect the children at a particular grade level. And I've been in education for 11 years, and we've never done that. Um, so I don't know what to expect from these 10-year-olds when they walk in my classroom. I don't know what's developmentally appropriate. I don't know what's physiologically possible. Um, but that's one of the things that it taught me was to to make things more developmentally appropriate for um, kids. We talk about that a lot in primary education. In early, early childhood education, a lot of things are that, but we lose that once we get into intermediate. But looking at certain skills, if I know developmentally that fifth graders struggle with making decisions, why am I consistently pushing them to make inferences? That's not physiologically what they do. There are other skills that are more appropriate for them at that age. Um, And it just taught me to be more cognizant of those things when I'm looking at different curriculums and why children aren't being successful, that sometimes the teacher is doing an amazing job and the children are working as hard as they can, that part of your brain is not developed. Um, It also taught me an appreciation for what we have in terms of resources. Um, We, No matter what school we work in, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough computers. We don't have enough whatever. You can fill in the blank. We don't ever feel like we have enough. But going to the Middle East, where it was a country that invested way more in education than we did, at the same time, the physical resources in classrooms were not there. Um, The quality of the classrooms, the schools were quite old and not necessarily the best kept. At the same time, children were still expected to learn. And the expectation was that you will learn. And I look at how we can sometimes use our lack of resources as an excuse or as an obstacle to why our children can't learn. And as we started off the entire conversation talking about expectations, so we don't have computers in our classroom, so I'll lower the expectation. So we don't have this in our classroom, so I'll lower the expectation. As opposed to saying, we don't have computers in our classroom, so I need to figure out what I'm going to do to meet this expectation without that resource. Hmm. And that's one of the things that I truly learned in the Middle East was really just how, how to make it how, – how to brainstorm to make it happen when all odds are against you.
1: Awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it. So uh, uh, I know you posted a blog, and, and you, you talked about your, your issue, your struggle with – I mean, your battle with that breast cancer – um, it came home with me because i lost my mother in 94 and then in 2003 i believe no, 2008 my sister was diagnosed um, with breast cancer and she went through uh, a similar situation that you uh, can we talk about that for a moment and how that has or if it has changed your perspective and like you know as far as an educator and, and how you deal with things and the you know professionally
2: Battling that? Um, so, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was diagnosed with breast cancer um, March 31st, 2017. And the biggest impact that it had on me was just really pushing what's important in life. And even in this work that I do every day, what's important. Um, I was at see it at that time and was able to come to prep, a school that's more aligned to what I believe personally. It's more aligned to my philosophy, and that's really the biggest push that the breast cancer and just facing and death um, gave me was just going back to what's important. What is important to me as an educator? It is important to me as an educator to be in an environment where I can help children to
1: have a. Uh, we met another plain, uh, fellow teacher out in who's out in Georgia. Who we watched him present uh, presented at a conference, and to find out that while he's up presenting to us, his wife's at home battling stage four uh, cancer. That moved her to hospital care, but the energy that he brought and that he still brings and that he pushes out his never you never would have guessed. It, you know and. And talking with him, he never made it a focus of what, it, what, of what he does because he stays focused on a mission. And I think that, you know, kind of what you were saying, that that kind of reality check was like, yeah, I, I got to focus on what's important. It it's it, 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 it it reminds me of the frailty of, of, our, of our life. to kind of have okay. to focus on what, what we're going to leave behind. So, but, um. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. I hope that somebody can listen to that and understand, you know, because we know it affects one in four women in our community. So, you know, like I tell kids all the time, I, I wear it as a badge that this is what I went through as a child, you know, with my mother, to let them know that if you're going through it, there's, it's very hard for today in today's society to find somebody who doesn't know someone, survived themselves, or lost someone to break down. And that's Crazy to hey. you say that, you know that hey. it's just every single home. There's not a home that's not been impacted in some kind of way, and that's just you know, yeah. So mm. thank you for and sharing the story with
0: us. And I and I do want to plug this here, and I want to make sure I put this out on the podcast because this is something that uh, that Will and I had talked about earlier uh, in the year. Um, we we love a, a, a nonprofit called Pencils of Promise. What they do is they build schools. Uh, all over the developing world they've built over 400 schools in these developing areas and and you can do fundraisers and if you you fundraise enough to build a school you can dedicate it to someone so our our goal is to um, in June of 2019 mark uh, mark the 25th anniversary of laws mom's passing by by dedicating a school to her so not only you know, Doctor Muhammad will reach out to you for some help, but we want to put that out to our podcast people to make sure that we we stay with it. And and that's that's a you know aside from what we do, that's just something that we think is good that we could do. And you know to really you know honor Law's mom and and those different things. So I want to I want to put that out on the podcast to make sure that we uh, stick to it because that's something we really want to do this next year.
2: Okay. Definitely let me know. I I, I, I do not. I, I, I am available for any and everything that raises awareness about breast cancer and, and education
1: together, definitely. Awesome. So, we saw on your IG that you, been, you you travel for summer quite a bit, more than I I wish I could have. Um, was, it, was it, was it, did you try I saw that you were teaching kids in Peru? Um. Yeah, so possible.
2: one of the one of the trips that I did, we actually took students from yesterday before. We took five students, two seniors, three juniors, um, to Peru for 16 days. So they got the opportunity to serve as teachers in a, in a primary school. The other trip was fun. That was Italy. Um, it was actually a thank you trip for my godmother and my best friend. they took care of me after my surgery for breast cancer. My best friend pretty much shut her business down for two months while I was
0: Going through
1: it, and so that was my thank you to them. Was a trip to get okay. wow. mm-hmm. mm. Sounds that's awesome. awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that, I, I want to touch back real quick on the, the, the trip to Peru with the kids. Um, how what were the kids' uh, reactions? Absolutely loved it. Um, but they got out
2: of the it. was amazing. them um, had been outside of our community before that. None of them had left the country before that, um, with the exception um, of going to visit family in, say, Mexico. So that was the first time that they had really been away. And the kids absolutely loved it. And I was grateful, um, actually, um, one of our class, one of my classmates from Kashmir, Vidal Vincent, uh, helped us with some fundraising uh, to be able so that the children were able to go for free. Wow, awesome! awesome. And so that's actually a program that we're we're looking to expand um, this year. We want to take a group to Morocco, a group to Egypt, um, a group will go back to Peru, and we have
1: a college trip plan for Boston for our middle school students. Uh, mm-hmm. showing them giving them out their block I love that
2: right right I you know that. I think about when we were in school you know we went to Astroworld we went to Six Flags in Dallas we went places that got us outside Of school. Mm -hmm. You know, they took us to Austin for different trips. We were encouraged Mm -hmm. to go, we were encouraged to be a part of organizations that could take us outside of Kashmir. And so that's one of the things that I want to bring here because that's that's what made me want to go to college when I went to UT in eighth grade. Um, And exposing our students to this because one of the saddest things I experienced as an educator um, when I taught my third Mm -hmm. year, HISD motto was college-bound culture. And so one day I just walked in class and asked my fifth graders what was college. They didn't have school. They didn't know what that was. And it was interesting to me that this is what we were preparing students for and they didn't even know what it was. So that's one of well, the things that I, I push in education is exposure. Our kids can't be what they don't know exists. Well. Mm-hmm. But
1: broadening
2: broadening their horizons and I, my, I tell them all the time, dream bigger. Well, I want to be a nurse. You, you should be a doctor. Okay, well, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a general practitioner. You should be a neurosurgeon. Oh, right. what's a neurosurgeon? And having those conversations with them to push that envelope
1: um, on what they can be. But, again, they can't, they don't know what it. oh, Right. And you know, it's funny because I I used to work with a lady, um, Dr. Trace Rafford, and she tells the story of how when she was at, um, when she was in middle school, she made the decision that she wanted to be a doctor. And so what she would do is when she would get off of school, she would go sit at the hospital and do her homework at the hospital. And one doctor walked up to her one day after seeing her there for a while saying, you know why are you here every day doing your homework? And she said because I want to become a doctor. And he gave her her first lab jacket and actually allowed her to start shadowing her. And she became a doctor because of that. And the doctor that, that mentored her was Doctor Red Duke. Uh, oh wow! So, so it, it, it just it, it goes to that, that once I'm exposed to something and I decide that I want to do it. Here's, because you can't say you're too young to start wanting to do it. Because as soon as you start it, you, you start etching that 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 pathway a lot earlier, which which actually focus when you when, you're going, when you go when life really starts moving and you start having to make decisions, which it just gives you something to focus on.
2: Yeah, you think Tiger Woods started playing golf there too? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at where he made of it. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, and it's truly that 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 idea of just. Just being able to see something, hone in on something, and then spend your every waking moment working towards that. Our kids need to be able to do that. Okay, guys, you can't kill me, but I have an eight o'clock meeting this morning, and they're looking at me through this window. Like, mm.
1: okay, Let's are you coming in? One last, one last question, then we'll let you go. The okay. Last question we What is, what do you want your lasting legacy like to, to be in education? And legacy exposure exposure and education for all kids Mm.
2: exposure and education for all kids i need you to be exposed to the world so that this education becomes valuable to you it's not valuable to our kids because they have not been exposed to avenues where it is important Mm. They haven't been exposed. If I'm living in Fifth Ward and my family works at the Kallachi factory in Walmart, why do I need an education? If I'm living down in the East End and my mom cleans houses and my father cuts grass, why do I need an education? They have not been exposed to avenues that make education
1: valuable. Mm. So exposure and education for all kids. Mm awesome well we thank you thank you thank yes, you yes ma'am I apologize for for holding your time up but thank you again so much for being on the podcast much appreciated
2: thank you guys so much for inviting me